Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. Notice how those two things coincide so very often, a show and a Saturday and a Saturday show. Well, I don't know right now if Kim Jong-un has choo-chooed his way out of the hearts, but also the actual physical capital of Russia. He does have that train. It's fascinating. So much about the real Kim Jong-un remains opaque. But a few years ago, I talked, 2019 in fact, I talked to the Washington Post's Anna Fifield, who had an interesting way of putting together a book, sort of like a CIA dossier through journalism. And the book's name was The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. She basically interviewed everyone who's ever had even a fleeting interaction with Kim Jong-un. We shall replay that interview forthwith. And you will also hear on this Saturday, this Saturday show, unless you're listening to it on some other day other than Saturday, or maybe if you listened to it earlier in this week, because what we're replaying is my analysis of the opening of the impeachment inquiry. Yes, impeachment inquiry and season on the Bidens are both open. The pesk analysis, I've coined that term here, but you could use it wherever you want, is upon us. Enjoy. Kim Jong-un is the most fascinating, vexing, perplexing, compelling figure in international politics. Who is he? He's been called a madman. He's clearly not. He's quite short. Apparently is uh, a great golfer, is uh, responsible for a few miracles, if you read the North Korean State News Agency. So cracking this case like no one has before with methods that have, to my mind, never been used for to profile anyone else, and I'll tell you why I say that in a second, is Anna Fifield. She is the author of The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Anna, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm thrilled to be here. So before I even before we even crack this nut, and I say that advisably, the methods, I do not know that what I'm about to say and how you went about constructing the book has ever been done. You literally talked to everyone who you could that had ever been in physical contact with Kim Jong-un. Is that right? Anyone. Yep, that is right. That's what I set out to do. So some of the people that I talked to during the course of reporting this book, they had like, they shook his hand. They spent mm. five seconds or 10 seconds with him at his father's funeral or some diplomatic function somewhere along the way. But like no encounter with Kim Jong-un was too trivial for me to hunt that person down and ask them about it. I think the biggest insights were not from an obscure so source. They were from his, uh, his aunt and uncle and people who knew him when he was a student in Switzerland, when he was outside the cosseted uh, existence that he lived in North Korea. So tell me what you learned from them. Right. So I talked to uh, three people who were at his eighth birthday party in North Korea. They included a Japanese sushi chef who lived there in the royal household and also his aunt and uncle who were there. 
and they described how he was given a little general's uniform on his eighth birthday, uh, complete with, you know, brass buttons and stars and a hat and all that, and that he was announced then as the comrade general, that he would be the successor to Kim Jong-il, his father. And they said that, you know, real generals were saluting him and bowing to him there, uh, and that it was impossible from that day on for him to live a normal childhood. Um, and also that they a, uh, you know, he got used to giving orders from that very young age. He would, you know, he was really fascinated with trains and planes and engines and things. And if he couldn't figure it out, even if it was three o'clock in the morning, he would call like a real admiral in the, you know, North Korean Navy or someone to <laughs> ask how to work his little motorboat or something. You know, Ugh. he yeah, had a very abnormal yeah. childhood. And what was his life like in his uh, his boarding school in Switzerland? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a boarding school. He lived at home with this aunt and uncle oh, in this okay. very ordinary apartment that I visited in the Swiss capital of Bern. It was like a, an orange apartment block, and he had a three-story apartment there, very ordinary. Uh, you know, he went to an English-language private school, first of all, and then he transferred two years into a German-language public school. And in both places, he did have a little difficulty um, communicating, you know, because of the language issue, but he eventually became conversational in German and managed to fit in a little bit more. But he was really kind of an oddity at his school all the same, even though there were a lot of international kids there, lots of kids of diplomats, as he was pretending to be. Uh, he um, he had four main friends who were uh, his buddies there that he could talk to. They said that he was like not very academically minded, not interested in his lessons. All he wanted to do was play basketball. And so every afternoon after school, he'd be out on the court, uh, shooting hoops and trash talking the other kids. And like that was where he really came into his element. And these kids, they said, you know, they're like 14 years old. They didn't care about or know about North Korea versus South Korea or anything like that. They didn't think anything of it. But they did think he was a little odd in that there was often a lineup of adults, like Korean adults sitting there in little fold-up chair, chairs who would like applaud him and cheer for him wherever, every time he scored a goal. And it was a little abnormal, they said. So was he the favorite son? I know he wasn't seen by outsiders. It was a surprise when he became the anointed one. Uh, what went into that decision? Was it was his mother the favorite? Was uh, he the favorite? How, how was he chosen? Because he has half brothers. Right. So, I mean, according to Korean and Confucian hierarchy, it should always be the oldest son who is the a, a successor, the heir. Um, and so in this situation, it should have been Kim Jong-nam, the firstborn son of Kim Jong-il. Uh, and there's been this widespread belief that Kim Jong-nam fell out of favor in 2001 when he was busted trying to sneak into Japan to go to Tokyo Disneyland with his family. But actually, I think that he fell out of favor well before then because Kim Jong-nam's mother, she basically left North Korea when Kim Jong-nam was only three years old. She had this kind of mental breakdown when her partner, Kim Jong-il, took off with another woman. And she went and lived in Moscow pretty much for the rest of her life. And she was out off the scene in North Korea. Whereas Kim Jong-un's mother 
she was there. She was the de facto first lady. She was very ambitious. She was very involved in the running of the regime. And she had high hopes for her sons. So she was uh, kind of engineering for them to be the successors from the get-go. Like She wanted them to be called the comrade generals and she arranged for them to go to the North Korean equivalent of West Point so that they had this kind of military credential going in. So I think it was her who was that was she was really the decisive factor in deciding which line of the family triumphed. Um, and amongst those two sons, you know, Kim Jong Chol, who's the oldest, Kim Jong Un's older brother, he seems to have some medical issues, or for some reason he did not rise to the top. Whereas Kim Jong Un, you know, apparently had a natural aptitude for this, and he he was the one who rose to the top of the pack. How much, how well does the totally oppressive state of North Korea work? I mean, we always hear, or if we've studied oppressive regimes, people within the regimes uh, under the Iron Curtain and so forth always knew to some extent that they were being lied to. Some of them did. But in North Korea, is that the case? Or have they really, has the uh, the leadership in Kim Jong-un really redefined reality to most of the people? No, it's pretty much the case today. Like 10 years ago, it was not the case. I think there would have been much more belief in the system. But now, you know, the trading has opened up a little bit with North Korea. And when those sacks of rice and those solar panels and things come in from China into North Korea – so too does information. So now almost everybody in North Korea has seen South Korean soap operas and Chinese action films and things that are smuggled into the country in little USB sticks or micro SD cards. So many people now have seen what life is like in the outside world. They know that this regime is built on lies and that everything about this, these quasi-deities is mythology. But the system is still so oppressive that they cannot speak out. You cannot criticize Kim Jong-un, uh, even obliquely and hope to get away with it in North Korea because this police state, it's really hard to exaggerate how pervasive it is, how workmates and family members can be coerced or to snitch on each other. Uh, it's very, very pervasive and the punishment is so severe so that if you were to criticize Kim Jong-un, not only would you be thrown into a political prison camp, but uh, potentially, almost certainly, three generations of your family. And so that is a very powerful deterrent from speaking out against this regime. So even though they know, people still do not feel able to criticize it or protest in any way. I always wonder, I mean, there's, it's so opaque, but with oppressive societies, it's not just, you know, it's often portrayed that the leader is horrible and if it weren't for the leader, no, there are stakeholders. Uh, Saddam Hussein had uh, a whole lot of people from his town and then his tribe and then his uh, sect who were loyal to him, right, even if he was oppressive. So you can't just take out the top. But with North Korea, how many people are there are really invested in the perpetuation of this place as a nuclear state hermit kingdom. 
Yeah, there is this cohort of elites who live in Pyongyang, the capital. Uh, like about 10% of the country or two and a half million people live in Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is the home to the people who are considered most loyal to the regime. Uh, the, so that's where all of the officials and all the top brass all live in Pyongyang. And but it also, to interrupt, it also does seem those people live in terror themselves. They do. They do live in terror. They live in constant fear of falling out of favor. But Kim Jong-un has been quite savvy and that not only does he use fear, but he also builds loyalty. So those people are enjoying a much higher standard of living under Kim Jong-un than they ever have before. I mean, partly because he's allowed so much corruption. So everybody is on the take in North Korea now. And these elites who have top jobs and maybe are, you know, the military is building all these apartment towers with Chinese construction companies. They're all siphoning off money and they're all finding ways to make money on the side. So these, they're called the masters of money in Korean. These people are living a much, uh, a much better life than they ever were before. And their children, like the millennials of Pyongyang, which is, you know, sometimes these days jokingly called Pyonghattan because it has improved so much. Like these millennials, they can go to pool halls and karaoke and do yoga classes and, um, you know, work out on these treadmills that bear signs saying respected and beloved Kim Jong-un donated this treadmill to you. Mm. Uh, there is this kind of whole leisurely air in Pyongyang among the elites now. So those people have even less reason than ever before to disrupt the system. Like they would not be the 1% if they went to South Korea, for example. So he's, he's held onto power partly by creating this loyalty amongst them and also by showing the fear, the terror. You know, you can lose everything. You can lose this li- nice life if you dare cross me. Yeah. Sounds like Pyong, Staten Island at best. Just going to say, I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> Pyonghan. Well, your book's a biography, and this is more a tactical question, but why would he ever give up nuclear missiles? I mean, it seems like that's the only thing keeping him in power. And so all of this outreach and and summits, even if it goes well or it doesn't go well, depending on how you define it, it just seems to me there's zero chance that Kim Jong-un would ever give up uh, the ambitions and the pursuit of nuclear weapons. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way he's giving up those nuclear weapons. I mean, two months before Kim Jong-un took over as leader of North Korea, Muammar Gaddafi was dragged out of a ditch, bloodied, you know, and then killed in a very gruesome way in Libya. I mean, and he, he had struck a deal with the United States to give up his nuclear capability and look what happened to him. I am sure that is a lesson that Kim Jong-un, you know, has seared into his brain and that there is, yeah, there's no way that I think he would ever feel secure enough to give up these weapons um, and that he would be able to explain it to his own people as well. But I think, you know, there is some middle ground here. There maybe there is some kind of agreement that can be reached uh, through baby steps. Uh, it's, he's not going to give up anything straight away, but maybe, he, yeah, he can give up some old reactors. Maybe, you know, they could uh, start a liaison office just to make it easier for them to talk. You know, there are no diplomatic relations between these two countries. So every time they do talk, it's a huge deal. Right. They could make it easier. You know, I uh, I went to Pyongyang with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra um, in 2008. I think things like that, like cultural exchanges, <laughs> sports exchanges, more basketball, you know, can all start to close the, the gap really, between It really is countries. Rodman. It really is all on Rodman. <laughs> I can't believe it. Not necessarily yeah. Rodman. Did you try 
try, yeah. you tried to get to Rodman, right? You talked to people around him. Yeah, yeah. I talked to five people who went on trips to uh, North Korea with Rodman on various trips, and they were able to describe you some of these. You talked to the entire potcoin leadership, did you? <laughs> <laughs> there were potcoin people and potcoin t-shirt wearers involved, yes. Um, but, you know, they were able to describe some of these really astounding scenes, you know, of going on benders with Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-un's there singing James Brown uh, at karaoke. And it's just really bizarre to think that this was able to happen. What do he's he's held out as a, a strange and ridiculous character to us in the West? But what did the South? How do the South Koreans read him, other than threat? Yeah, I mean the South Koreans have become very used to the threats from North Korea. You know, of having this these you know dictators north of the border. But I think uh, they have become quite inured to that threat. You know, they've been living in artillery range of North Korea for 60 years. They know that this dispute is mainly between the United States and North Korea. So, I mean, in my years of living in South Korea, people would just kind of poo-poo the idea of a North Korean threat or anything, you know, and they'd laugh about kind of any crisis response drills and things like that. And that began to change a bit in 2017. And I have to say, it wasn't because of Kim Jong-un that things changed. It was because of Donald Trump. I mean, they felt that Kim Jong-un was a predictable uh, factor in this equation. But the unpredictable quotient was Donald Trump and that they did not know uh, how serious he was about fire and fury. You know, they heard Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and things say, you know, fight a war over there. Who cares? It's not our people kind of thing. And this um, put fear into people like never before. From this project and getting to know him, I think probably certainly as best as any journalist has or as any uh, as any person from the West has. Um, do you fear him more or less now that you know him so well? Hmm. I I mean, the point I wanted to make in writing the book is that he's not this like total nut job as Trump once described to him. That right. he has been very rational and very strategic. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, stipulated. So that means, though, I mean, that could go either yeah. way. If he were know, insane, that maybe that's more scary, maybe that's less scary. Yeah. I mean, I think I fear him more in that he has proven to be very canny and strategic. And, you know, I don't see any signs that he's going anywhere anytime soon. And, he, you know, he's he's been willing to use really brutal tactics to stay in power. So I think we should be taking him very seriously and, and not underestimating him. That's for sure. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. She was previously the Post-Tokyo bureau chief, and she is the author of The Great successor, the divinely perfect destiny of brilliant comrade Kim Jong-un. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And now the spiel. We at the gist vow to bring you all the impeachment news. Well, all the impeachment of Joe Biden news, if there is one, and there just may be one. But there's also an impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton going on down there. Let's pop in for coverage of the cross-examination of a Texas Ranger. Why is it that every time I ask you if you've taught folks to testify, you suddenly 
can't hear the question. Actually, my testifying, I learned by experience. Okay. And is that one of the things you've learned by experience, Ranger, to pause and act like you haven't heard the question? Maybe. Fair enough. Well, what did you learn? Clever silence that speaks loudest of all. Well, so does mockery to a large extent. Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania was asked about the impeachment inquiry authorized by Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Here's Senator Fetterman's reaction. I'm asking about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment inquiry. Has said he's going to. Oh my God! Really? Oh my gosh! You know? Oh, it's devastating. don't do it please don't do it oh no oh no but they are going to do it just an inquiry just asking questions who knows where the questions will lead the savvy insiders at punchbowl news do and their answer is inexorably in an actual impeachment they write quote it's almost guaranteed that house republicans will impeach biden Remember, a sizable number of Republicans were ready to impeach before the inquiry even began. And once the House has begun the process, not impeaching Biden will look like a validation of the president to many rank and file lawmakers. This may be too much for McCarthy to control. Almost guaranteed, that was their phrase. I think that's a bit strong, but I think you'd definitely make a case that it's more likely than not that we'll get an impeachment. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Chinese diamonds were smuggled in Hunter Biden's ass after a Chinese billionaire gave it to him. No, actually, that didn't happen. There are some salacious stories out there. Chinese diamonds do come into play. Here's the fairest way to put the allegations that a Republican who supports the impeachment would side on to, to be fair. While Joe Biden was vice president of the United States in charge of rooting out corruption in Ukraine, his son Hunter worked for a Ukrainian company that wound up being corrupt. Jim Jordan and others clamoring loudest for impeachment would add facts not in evidence like, and Joe Biden warped U.S. policy for the benefit of Hunter and Hunter's money wound up in circuitous ways benefiting the Biden family. They probably add crime, the Biden crime family. And that remains to be proved. The difficulty of acquiring proof is that solid evidence is elusive. Another difficulty in acquiring proof could very well be it never happened. But even if it didn't happen, those Republicans, the ones clamoring for impeachment, will spin a tale that, yes, okay, we couldn't prove it because we were just thwarted. It was the successful subterfuge of the drug-addled son and the cognitively impaired president. Or maybe, you know, like I said, it didn't happen. But I will say this, keep tuning into this space. I would say there is no one who is both more informed and more fair than I am on this issue. Now, how do I define fair? I think I phrased it that Biden was in charge of corruption and there was corruption going on with a guy named Biden. I think that if evidence comes to the fore or even is in the background, I'll credit it. I will credit the evidence. I have not predetermined or prejudged what the evidence might find. I also follow this aspect of the story pretty well. I have had to put the Ken Paxson impeachment on the back burner, but I follow a lot of it. I have some, oh, I don't want to be so grandiose sources, but I talk to a lot of people who know a lot of people. So I'm watching this pretty closely and you could trust me if there really is some plausibly damaging evidence, I'll cite it. And if there is some nonsense going on, 
I'll also sigh at it. And in fact, I did a podcast called Live from the Table with uh, Eli Lake, who actually has a lot of sources and is very well read in on this, and a couple of Michael Moynihan, who's a journalist, Noam Dorman, who hosted the podcast, and we'll put that in the feed. If you've not been following it, some of it might seem a little confusing, but I have been doing a lot of work on this subject. We'll continue to do so for you, for you, my friends, and democracy, but also you. But let's do this. Let's get a read on how all of this will ultimately play out in the Senate by listening to Senate Republicans. Here's Tom Tillis of North Carolina. I don't think that it's going to result in a removal on the Senate side, but if there's meaningful information that they think the American people need to know about, I'm okay with it. All right. He seems like not opposed if there is something, but he doesn't seem too enthused or optimistic that they're going to find something. Here's John Thune, the Senate's number two Republican, worried about an impeachment trial taking up too much time. It's a written quote, quote, I don't think it would be advantageous, obviously, if this thing went further with all the other things we have to do to go through another trial. That strongly implies that there's nothing there. Thune wouldn't worry about a duty to remove a demonstrably corrupt president if he thought that it was demonstrated that the president was corrupt. Plausible impeachment followed by highly improbable conviction. Today, that is how the process seems like it will play out. But how will the politics play out? The Democrats, given Senator Fetterman's evocation of the finger-waggling international sign for fratycatism, seem to think it won't hurt the president. Bring it on. The Senate Republicans, and I could have quoted several more, are pretty skeptical of the usefulness of the impeachment inquiry. The House Republicans are mostly on board with the impeachment inquiry, or at least feel they have to be, to keep in good standing with their Biden-hating base, though there are 18 representatives serving in districts that Biden won. They may get less convicted the more it becomes clear Joe Biden won't be. Then you got the Freedom Caucus and the most hardcore Republicans driving this train. In this case, the mange wags the dog. And there may yet be some actual, real, damaging, demonstrable evidence as a result of this inquiry. I'm not precluding the possibility of some amount of meat on the corruption allegation bone. But if not, going deep into these Ukrainian matters might go as bad for House Republicans as it did for others on Team Red. Just saying. And that's it for The Saturday Show, as produced by Corey Wara and the senior producer of The Just, Joel Patterson. I'll talk to you on Monday.